A reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give daughters give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. And would your spirit be here among us at work in our midst, uh, redirecting our thoughts and our desires toward you, that we may be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ for our own sake and for the sake of your world. Amen. Love the city. What does that even mean? That's the next question that we're taking up together in this series that we're calling Questions That Linger, in which we're reflecting on questions that help us explore what kind of church we hope to be here at City Church. And obviously, we are a church that is located here in the city of Philadelphia. 
Our community is concentrated in the two neighborhoods in which we gather formally for worship. This one, University City, West Philadelphia, and the Fairmount neighborhood. But of course, our members, uh, they live in many different neighborhoods, right, across the city or in the suburbs outside of the city. And we want to be a church that takes our place or places seriously. Of all the places on earth where we could be, here we are right? Um, Bloom where you're planted, as they say, and God has planted us here. So what does that look like? And maybe just to get the ball rolling, it would be helpful to take a moment to think, just when you hear that phrase, love the city, what comes to your mind? What do you think of when you hear that phrase? Some of you uh, undoubtedly will immediately recognize the phrase as Christian lingo, Right? It's, the, it's basically the unofficial motto of urban church planting movements that gained a lot of momentum in the U.S. in the 90s and the early 2000s. And our church is part of that family of church planting movements. So there's some lingo there. And for those who here love the city as Christian lingo, for some, uh, you, you may find it inspiring. Others may find it trite because love the city is a hashtag that Christians all over the place attach to posts about their community doing acts of service for their neighbors. It's a phrase that church planters and urban ministry leaders use in order to mobilize volunteers and raise money from donors. And it's a, it's a phrase that can be as self-congratulatory or self-serving as it can be genuinely celebratory and inspiring. So as Christian lingo, this phrase, love the city, is complicated. And it deserves some critical reflection. But it's not just Christian lingo, is it? I mean, if you, if you look um, more broadly, this phrase, love the city, is a popular one that urbanites and travelers use as shorthand for this place is so much fun or the city is so beautiful. If you just look up hashtag love the city, you'll find 100,000 posts about skylines and craft cocktails and bike lanes and beautifully plated gourmet cuisine, all shared by people who have chosen to spend their leisure time in the city because they enjoy the amenities that it has to offer, right? Love the city. That's, in, in many ways, its popular usage is about enjoying the city's amenities. But in academic circles, maybe that phrase, love the city, isn't so much part of the vernacular, at least as far as I know. It's not my field. Um, but, but the concept of building better cities is absolutely there, right? You've got urban planners and architects and sociologists and social workers, entrepreneurs, government officials, nonprofit organizations, so many others as well who devote their attention, their skill, their work to understanding the city and transforming it into an ecosystem of individuals and institutions that will collectively thrive. So loving the city, it's a big deal. I mean, whether we're talking about enjoyment or engagement or any other aspect of whatever it means to love a place. But we should probably also acknowledge, before we start thinking too much about what it means for us to love the city, we should also acknowledge that many people don't think loving the city is a good thing to do at all, right? Cities, by many, are viewed with suspicion, resentment, even disdain because they're seen as being incubators of all that's wrong with the world. 
One of the most iconic images from the 2016 election and its aftermath is that red and blue map of the U.S. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The one that shows the red and blue country by county. And you can see these blue cities dotting the vast red landscape of rural America. And the polarization of the current political climate certainly has an urban, non-urban dimension to it. And that fact is certainly not lost on pundits from either side who will make much of that statistic for their own purposes. And of course, we know that polarization cuts right through the heart of the American church as well. So what do we do with that? I think our scripture passages today do help us begin to reflect well on the question, what does it mean to love the city? And what I hope we will discover together, at least in part today, but more fully, hopefully also in the months and years to come as we continue to follow Jesus together and continue to explore what this means together, what I hope we'll discover is uh, that what it looks like for us at City Church to take up a way of loving the city that makes us contributors, contributors to the common good, instead of being simply consumers of the city's amenities, or colonizers who seek to impose our own values on our neighbors. So what do I mean by that? Well, if, you just, if we take the time to listen to our neighbors and just ask, like, hey, what has been your experience of the church's attempts to love the city? What we'll hear are many stories that are beautiful and inspiring, where people can acknowledge that Christians have moved toward other people and places of need and have done beautiful and wonderful things. Those are some of the stories that we'll hear. We'll also hear many other stories that are not that. We'll hear stories of how we, the church, can come across in many ways as caring a lot more about ourselves than about our neighbors. Stories that reveal ways in which we, the church, may have allowed a worldly consumerism to shape the way we, quote, love the city. And so confession number one that we might come to is we need to acknowledge the ways that we are here for the city's amenities more than we are here for our neighbors. But we'll also hear stories about how we, the church, have unintentionally done harm by trying to help because we've led with our own vision and our own values and our own need to lead everything, our own need to be the ones who generate and catalyze movements, rather than leading with our knowing, seeing, and listening to our neighbors. And so there's stories about how well-intentioned Christians have trampled our neighbors, how we've come in hoping to do good, but instead of just imposed middle-class values on neighbors that aren't looking for those things to be imposed on them. And there are all kinds of stories about how well-intentioned Christians have done harm by helping. And these are stories that reveal ways in which we, the church, may have allowed uh, an arrogant, insensitive colonialism to shape the way we, quote, love the city. And so confession number two that we should probably spend some time with is we need to acknowledge the ways that we have been here to impose our own vision and values on the city more than to share life with our neighbors. And what I think what our scripture passages will help us discern somewhat is a way of loving the city that helps us repent of both of these tendencies to consume and colonize 
and to move us instead into a way of loving the city as contributors who share life with our neighbors and seek the common good according to God's vision for human flourishing and Jesus' ethic of love your neighbor. So look at Jeremiah 29 with me, this passage that we just read from the prophet. I think what we see here in Jeremiah 29 is a vision where love the city means seeking the shalom of the city. We'll talk about that word shalom in just a second. But seeking the shalom of the city in solidarity with our neighbors. Okay, Seeking the well-being of the city in solidarity with our neighbors. And maybe before we dive into the positive things that this text has to offer us, we should maybe acknowledge there's some hard language in that text as we read it, right? There's some, some um, language that could be triggering to us about taking wives, having children, giving daughters in marriage, language that belongs to a patriarchal society that had values and gender norms that, that are different from our own. And so it can be difficult to receive what is positive and helpful from a text that may uh, be, it may sound to us so abrasive at the, at the beginning that it's difficult for us to listen well. But what I think this text has to offer us is not uh, a retroactive, you know, sort of a retrograde trip back into an old way of, uh, of ancient social structures, but rather what we're seeing is God's prophet speaking into a world that was structured that way and leading God's people and in inhabiting that world faithfully. And it's not just a world of patriarchy. It's a world of exile in Babylon. And so God here, through his prophet Jeremiah, gives this message to the people. And he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And to understand what's going on in this text, we have to step into the story of Israel just for a moment and recognize what moment this is coming from. So what's happened here is that the people of God, if you remember in the Old Testament, they've organized as a kingdom, right? And you have like King David and King Solomon, and then that kingdom splits as all kinds of drama unfolds. And basically, it splits into these two kingdoms, and the northern one gets conquered by the Assyrians, and then the southern one gets conquered by the Babylonians. And before you know it, all things fall apart, and God's people have been carried away to become captives in enemy territory. And all of God's promises that centered around the land seem to have simply dissipated, vanished into thin air. And so there are all these questions about the faithfulness of God. Is is God actually going to make good on his promise that we would be the heirs to the promise, which was centered around this land in Israel? And so Israel's experience of exile, it's tragic. And Jeremiah is prophesying to this kingdom of Judah, which has been taken captive in Babylon, forced to live in exile under a rule of an enemy king in a land where other kinds of religion are the religion of the land. And they're trying to figure out how can we be here faithfully. And so he's speaking into that situation. And what he says is to seek the well-being, the shalom of the city in which I've sent you into exile. Now, shalom is a category that we find in the Bible at the very beginning. And it's, it's this rich Hebrew notion uh, that's often simply translated peace, but can also be translated as like wholeness or flourishing or, or 
more broadly, God's intended way for thriving life on the earth. Shalom is this Hebrew concept for how life ought to be in relation to God and in relation to everything else. It's the good way, the good life of life on earth. And so as we see this story situated in this larger story that begins in creation where God makes a world of shalom and that shalom gets vandalized and falls apart and then the people are exiled, it's a story that unfolds toward Jesus, right, who comes to restore all that is broken, who comes to make new all that has been destroyed. And God's new creation of shalom is what breaks in to an old and broken world. And that's what happens in Jesus. And so this gospel that we read, uh, as, we, as we reread these Old Testament texts through the gospel of Jesus, what we see is that this, the gospel is this message that the Son of God himself has ventured into the far country of our exile to join us, to make our situation his own, and to suffer the full ugliness and the weight of the tragic consequences of this human project to build a world without God. And then he opens this way to bring us out of the dead, dying, and cruel world of our own making and into the glorious, everlasting, and thriving world that he makes. And this is what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for us. It's what the sending of God's Spirit means for us. And as Christian theologians over the years have reflected on this story and this, kind, this passage and other exile texts, a common way of thinking about the life of the church on earth today is that we are exiles here. That the church's present situation is a situation of exile. We are not presently living in the fullness of the inheritance that God has promised us. The world of new creation, the world set right, life as it ought to be. That's an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and not made with human hands, guarded in heaven for you, as Peter describes it. It's a kingdom that's unshakable, as the writer of Hebrews describes it. Yet we live in this present experience where we don't experience life like that. We're citizens of the city of God living here in the city of humanity. And so our exilic vocation is to live here in a way that fits life there. Shalom. It's this Hebrew word about life as God intends it. And Jeremiah here says, seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile. And as the Israelites apply that to their own situation in Babylon, we can pull that to our own situation in Philadelphia as we think about what it means for the church to live here in this city, a city that is absolutely, in many ways, broken, yet to live as citizens of God's city who look for opportunities to cultivate life here in a way that reflects the beauty, the justice, and the peace of life as God intends it. One of my favorite theologians these days is a guy named Mark Gornick, who actually did come and speak here uh, seven or eight years ago. But he's up in New York. He's the, the leader of City Seminary in New York City. And he, he makes much of this passage from Jeremiah 29 as he develops a, the, a theology of mission in the city. And he says that as he reads this text, he identifies three ways that we as the church today participate in this Jeremiah 29 way of seeking the shalom of the city. 
And he says the three ways he identifies are presence, prayer, and public activity. Presence. He talks about dwelling as neighbors and friends in a mutuality and shared life. A real solidarity where we live as fellow citizens with the people who live near us. And you think about this line from Jeremiah, for in its welfare, the welfare of the city, you will find your welfare. It's important that the well-being of God's people is attached to the well-being of their neighbors, right? They're not insulated from the hard things. It's not like their well-being is over here, protected and guaranteed, and they're supposed to dole out some sort of love and service that doesn't make them vulnerable to the same vulnerabilities that their neighbors are experiencing, but rather they're all in, sink or swim together as neighbors on the same block, members of the same neighborhood association, what have you. Real presence where we really, really, really dive in with our neighbors into the living together. Not what we often do, and you know, many of us, I think, as we look at the ways that we live in the city, what do we do? Well, for those who have resources to do it, often what we do is we insulate ourselves from the hard things as well as we can while affiliating ourselves with the fun things as much as we can so that our belonging here isn't really present, is it? It's a selective present. It's a presence. It's a privileged kind of presence where we opt into what we want to opt into. We opt out of what we can opt out of, which always creates a distance and a barrier between us and our neighbors when we live like that. But to seek the shalom of the city, Gornick says, is to be present in a place where we're actually all in, where we're actually living in real mutuality and solidarity with our neighbors so that their well-being and our well-being are wedded together and that we relate to our own future and our neighbor's future in that way. So presence. But then he goes to prayer. And he says, you know, true hope for the future of the city is grounded in prayer. Prayer as kingdom activity is not the last hope for the city. It is the beginning of hope. Because it's in prayer that we participate with Christ in his priestly work of interceding for humanity. We join Jesus in his work of bearing those burdens and bringing them before God who makes all things new. And I think it can be really easy for us to forget that prayer is significant. If you're, I'll just speak for myself. If you're anything like me, it's easy to forget that prayer matters, you know? That what we do seems to be far more important. And of course, we're called to do, but praying is doing. And that's what Gornick wants us to remember, and that's what Jeremiah is even saying as he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. I was humbled recently by my four-year-old son as we were walking down the street. My daughter goes to the public kindergarten in our neighborhood, and my son and I were walking down the street, and we walk past the corner where her, the window to her kindergarten classroom is, and my son, Will, he's just going on, doing his thing, and then all of a sudden he goes, Jesus be with Annie. <laughs> Holds up his hand. And, I, and it was just so beautiful, and I was so struck because I didn't think to do that, but he did prayer, it's not the last hope that we have. It's actually the beginning of hope. And this passage calls us to remember that God really is at work, and God really does bless our prayers. 
Gornick also says public activity, that third P of how we engage life in the city through this Jeremiah 29 kind of way of doing it. And he talks about public activity as our working to make practical improvements in the lives of individuals, families, and the community, right? He talks about it's, it's about getting involved. Be present, be prayerful, and get involved. Do stuff. Um, Get involved in local schools. Get involved in after-school programs, in the neighborhood associations. Get involved in what Ann Smith was just talking about here, right, with young lives. Um, There's so many places that members of our community are connecting, and there's so many opportunities that we have as individuals, as groups, and as the institution of this church to get involved, to move toward our neighbors. And I know this is one of those areas of felt frustration that over the years as we've talked about our life together at city church who are we what are we doing well what are we not doing well what do we want to become how do we want to grow up one of the felt frustrations in our community is that we we don't do a good enough job of this and obviously that's true we don't there's so much more we can do and so much more room for us to grow up into our being present and prayerful and publicly active in the city and in our neighborhoods and with our neighbors. Um, And I think those frustrations, they're they're actually two pieces of the frustration that I think we need to key in on. One one is positive and one is negative. I think uh, positively, I think those frustrations are often rightly felt because there's so much room for us to grow. And many of you who have felt that frustration and you felt the disquiet in your own souls over our uh, our under-involvement, you have been some of the most important leaders who have found places for us to connect, and you have mobilized members of our community to get involved, or you've mobilized the community as a whole to do things like get involved with Redemption Housing or UCHC or what have you. Um, And so that's been very important that you've rightly seen an area where we need to grow up as a church. On the flip side, I would say also, but I think there's also a lot more that is happening that's to be celebrated that we simply don't see because we're looking at it through tunnel vision. We, when we look at our involvement through simply the tunnel vision of where we officially, as the institutional church, are connecting, we're missing all of the many ways that our many members of the body spend their entire lives doing exactly this kind of stuff. Jeremiah 29, it's fascinating. You know, it's not written to like the institutional synagogue in Babylon. That's not a thing. It's written to the individuals and the families who are experiencing life in exile. And it's saying to them, be present, be prayerful, and be publicly active. And as you look across our community and you just look at what people do in ordinary life, what you do in your ordinary vocations, I mean, look at how many of you work in healthcare professions where you spend all of your vocation, your vocational time and energy actually healing people, improving quality of life for those in their own physical bodies? How many of you are educators? How many of you are social workers, counselors? How many of you are attorneys that advocate for those who don't have a voice? You know, how many of you are artists who bring forth beauty into the earth and help us to see it? And you can go on and on and on and on. Or how many of you are just simply entrepreneurs who are making things happen, making the economy work, and doing it in a way that's honorable and just, and you're not exploiting your workers, but you're actually doing it in a way that reflects the goodness of the way God stewards 
resources. You can go on and on and on for all of us and think about our vocational callings and the ways that we spend our lives. And what you begin to see is, wow, actually, every single one of us is engaged in this work of getting involved. But often we just don't see it that way. And one of the best things I think we can do as a church, as a church community, is to be a worshiping community that equips the members of this body to engage your work in that way. And to see the opportunities that you are in every day as opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Which is not to be like a cop-out that says, therefore volunteering isn't needed. Of course it is. But rather is to say, look at what's already happening. Look at how beautiful that is. Look at how much joy we miss out on when we don't see it for what it is. And how might that compel us to a richer and fuller way of getting connected in these other ways as well, volunteering to love and serve our neighbors through all of these other opportunities that we have. If you look at the Luke 10 passage, this parable of the Good Samaritan, I think there we learn another aspect of this that's related, which is simply that love the city, it's going to mean for us, be a neighbor. Be a neighbor to the person who's actually right in front of you and not just the person that you want to hang out with. You know, this parable, um, to say that it's a story of an unlikely hero would be like a real understatement, right? Samaritans in Luke's day were hated people. Priests and Levites were deeply respected people. So when the priest and the Levite are the negative examples of how not to do it, and the Samaritan is then the example of what God is looking for, Jesus is making a really big point about, hey, maybe, maybe just maybe, the religious folks aren't as close to the heart of God as they think they are. Maybe what God is after is something more beautiful, more real, more personal. And the Samaritan steps in to love his neighbor. And Jesus says, which one of these was a neighbor to the man? And the answer is so obvious. It's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. As we were having our staff Bible study time on Tuesday and reading these texts, we were reflecting on what stood out to us about these texts, and Jonathan just mentioned this guy's generosity with his time and with his stuff and his willingness to, like, let his stuff get used up and taken away stands out as striking. And as I was looking at it, what stood out to me is this guy's flexibility and his openness with his time and his agenda. I mean, the Samaritan was going somewhere. He had some place to be, Right? But he comes across someone in need on the road. And wherever, the, wherever it is that he's going, whatever it is that he was doing, whatever agenda was his to-do list for the day, that becomes less important than the neighbor who's right in front of him. I just think of my own life and just how much my own to-do list for the day becomes an inhibitor to love. How I just get, I get in my routine, right? I get in my, going through the motions. I'm active. I've got places to be. I've got a full calendar. I've got stuff to do. Big, important things to do. And the person right in front of me doesn't get any of me because I'm more committed to my own schedule than I am to him or to her. So the flexibility, the openness, the open-handedness of the Samaritan is what stands out to me as we think about how we might grow in being neighbors Love the city. Be prayerful. Be present. 
active in these places where we live and where we work and where we socialize. Being a neighbor in a way that moves both you and your neighbor closer to the heart of God. I think this is what it means for us to love the city. And I think more and more of this is what I hope we will discover together as a community as we begin to take up this life in a richer and fuller way. I'd like to just share with you this quote to close from, uh, from Rowan Williams, from his book, Where God Happens. He says this, Everything begins with this vision and hope, to put the neighbor in touch with God in Christ. Gaining the brother or sister and winning God are linked. It's not getting them signed up to something or getting them on your side. It is opening doors for them to healing and to wholeness. Insofar as you open such doors for another, you gain God in the sense that you become a place where God happens for somebody else. You become a place where God happens. As we think about what kind of church we want to be as as city church here in Philadelphia, maybe most fundamentally, as we think about how to take our place seriously, we might just say it like this. We want to be a place where God happens in the city of Philadelphia. And we want to discover together what it looks like for us to be that, to see that, to pray that, to share that, to live that, to extend that, to work that in our places of our daily work, our daily grind. And to grow up into that kind of vision that God is actually bringing his kingdom of shalom to bear upon the earth as it is in heaven. He's doing that in Jesus, and he's called us as the followers of Jesus to be instrumental in that and a foretaste of that. That's our calling. And to close, I'd like to simply pray this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer on page 825, if you want to look it up later, a prayer for cities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your word, you have given us a vision of that holy city to which the nations of the world bring their glory. Behold and visit, we pray, the cities of the earth. Renew the ties of mutual regard which form our civic life. Send us honest and able leaders. Enable us to eliminate poverty, prejudice, and oppression, that peace may prevail with righteousness and justice with order, and that men and women from different cultures and with differing talents may find with one another the fulfillment of their humanity. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The offering is a time where we reflect on what God is teaching us. We give of ourselves 